Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and, and you know Eric, I say podcasting is easy. I don't know who they are. <laughs> I was going to say, do they? Or, do they say or, that? I don't know when they said it, but they <laughs> said it. I know they did. I can hear them saying it now, being all judgy and stuff. But... You see, here's the thing. You know, what they don't know is how physically taxing it can be. I mean, I don't know how you're doing, but I'm suffering with this 45-pound Skype headset on my head here. I just, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end, man. My, my legs are gone already. I hear you. Yeah, we know. We, we, we really should have ordered the standard 8-ounce headsets. I don't, I don't know what we were thinking. Oh, well. Live and learn, Kieran. Live and yeah. learn. Oh, uh, thinking. And the Showtime boxing with Maraskin and Mulvaney don't normally go together, do they really? No, no, especially <laughs> not uh, in this case. Oh, well. Yes, indeed. All right, we are shaking up the order of things a little bit on this week's edition of the podcast. Uh, we do have Showbox results to cover, as well as Mikey Garcia's victory over Jesse Vargas and the resurrection, if you will, of Roman mm. Chocolatito Gonzalez. Uh, we will have an interview that we're very much looking forward to. Uh, with one of the finest cut men in all of combat sports, Jacob Stitch Duran. And we're going to take a little dip into the listener mailbag, which we haven't done for a while. Uh, but we are going to start this week uh, where we usually finish, uh, by discussing the outside of the ring news, because nothing really has had the boxing world buzzing this week. Quite like the controversy I thought, to follow on from our opening joke can perhaps best be described as 45-pound Black History Month ringwalk outfit gate. <laughs> that, is, that is catchy. It, it rolls right off the tongue. Yes. Um, so a, a lot has happened concerning uh, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder in the week since they fought and we podcasted about the fight itself, beginning with the headlines coming fast and furious on Monday after Deontay took part in several interviews. The key takeaways from those interviews were... Yes, he plans to trigger the immediate rematch clause, and then he did, in fact, trigger it a few days later. He is upset with Mark Breland for stopping the fight. He accused Anthony Durrell, sitting near Breland, of convincing him to throw in the towel to help Fury, since Durrell is trained by Fury's trainer, Sugar Hill Stewart. And I, I believe Deontay has a whole conspiracy wall at home with thumbtacks and strings <laughs> and pictures diagramming that one. I'm in Glenn Beck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... And the big one, that Deontay blames his defeat in part on the outfit he wore to the ring, which he says weighed 45 pounds and tired him out and weakened his legs. A lot of people have made a lot of fun of that last part, uh, and rightly so. Kieran, how are you feeling about Wilder's excuse making, and where does the heavy costume rank for you on the all-time list of wacky boxing excuses? So I do want to be a bit understanding in that you know this is a previously undefeated fighter who not only lost his o but more than that you know he's a fighter whose whole brand whose whole success whose self-identity was based on intimidation on being the big bully and he not only lost but he got bullied he got beaten up um and i think he's lashing out primarily because he's trying to explain it all to himself i think um mm -hmm. unfortunately as he tries to do that, he is making himself look a bit ridiculous. Um, is it possible that that costume affected him? I, I guess, but look, it certainly should have affected him less than it would have affected, say, for example, me. I mean, he's a 230-pound muscular athlete who actually, by his own ambition, wears 40-pound vests while training. Right. Uh, um, uh, is, is it likely that his legs weaken? I don't know. Uh, but... 
But I suppose you could say at elite level, um, contests can sometimes be decided in the margins. And mm-hmm. if when he got into the ring, it was in his head that it had affected him, that could be a big deal. Um, but the thing is, nobody forced him to wear it. And honestly, if you're on record multiple times making highly dubious claims like, I want a body on my record, you can't then with a straight face say, I lost because my clothes gave me an owie. It just doesn't... <laughs> it, you just come across as absurd. Right. And, and, and especially if just two days after the fight, you're actively phoning reporters one by one to tell them that's what happened. Right. You know, it's not even like he's let a certain amount of time go by or, or anything. It's, you know, that's when you sort of need to have... If you're Deontay, you need to have somebody saying, Deontay, don't do this. But I don't think he's one to listen to others. And then he posted a video on Friday, Saturday, Saturday mm-hmm. morning, I think, talking about how he, being all Deontay again, and how he's the king, and he'll be back. He sounded a bit like a sort of rejected Game of Thrones character. <laughs> and um, and again, I think that looks a bit ridiculous in the context. Like, let it just, let things settle a little bit. Um, but I do, I think part of this is, is for an audience of one, and that audience is him. But he does go to answer the last part of your question. He is right up there in the pantheon of great slash asterisk, absolutely not great uh, excuses. <laughs> right. um, I think Manny Pacquiao is the only multiple entrant. Um, he was weakened before the first Eric Morales fight by having a tiny amount of blood drawn a couple of days previously. Uh, if you right. remember yes. that one, right? And when he was unable to finish off Juan Manuel Marquez in the first fight and was held to a draw, it's because his socks were cheap. Do you remember that one? Right, yeah. That was was a good one. Um, But even though he's got a couple in there, I still don't think either of them are quite as good as Deontay's. But Deontay does have some good competition here. Uh, There is Kermit Centron complaining of being made dizzy by the hair products. Oh, right, yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's right up there. And... Staying on the olfactory excuse making, uh, Alexander Povetkin blaming a subpar performance against Marco Hook on the fact that Hook had BO <laughs> that he smelled, right? And he and he was gagging. Um, but then, of course, and parents, if you're listening out loud to this, cover the kids' ears. There's also Mike Tyson explaining that prior to his loss to Buster Douglas, quote. I was fucking them Japanese girls like I was eating grapes. <laughs> with, least... <laughs> with, with, with the lisp, you kind of you kind That's... of obscured the curse word. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. But I'm sure at least like a lot of fans could listen to that and go, yeah, all right, Mike. Yeah, good on you. <laughs> but I don't think they're doing that with Deontay. Uh, no, it's it's definitely not not something to applaud in the same way that one might uh, applaud <laughs> Mike's excuse. Um, yeah, like you, I can't rule out the possibility that the ring walk with the heavy outfit really did make his legs a little tired. I don't know. Uh, that right. They certainly looked rubbery from early on in the fight, so it's possible that had something to do with it. It sounds ridiculous on the surface, but I can see there being some truth to it. But it's it's not a good excuse, even if it's a valid <laughs> excuse, uh, because, and you basically said this, you know, that's on Wilder and his team. If they... Uh, you know, if they didn't try on this suit and recognize that it was a bad idea, um, whether it's true or it isn't, I'm simultaneously annoyed about the excuse making and very understanding about it. Uh, and this is this is some territory that, that you covered to an extent that 
Um, yeah, it, it's it's a bad look from Wilder. Uh, we'd all respect him more if he said no excuses and there was no but afterward, and that was that. <laughs> he could be the first fighter ever to stop after the word excuses. Um, but I'm sympathetic to the fact that a fighter has to believe he's the best to get to the top and has to have a huge ego. And if he was the type of guy that would say, well, I guess Tyson Fury is just better than I am, he never would have gotten this far in the first right. place. Right. Um, and also, he wants to sell a third fight. Uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of, of Pacquiao excuses. You didn't mention his most recent significant excuse of the shoulder problems in the Mayweather right. fight. Uh, and it's a little bit like that in that whether it's true or not that shoulder problems were an issue in that fight. If he and Mayweather were to fight again, they'd need people to believe that Manny was compromised right. the first time in order to buy the rematch. So same thing here. Excuses help plant a seed in people's minds and make them think the next fight might be different. This isn't baseball where you, you play 162 games and, eh, well, it wasn't our day. We'll get them tomorrow. If you want people to pay to see this fight again, you need to convince them the result yeah. will be different next time. Yeah. Uh, now, let, let's talk about the pay-per-view numbers. Uh, and uh, Joe Tessator, uh, you probably don't want to listen to this part. You, you might want to fast forward a couple of minutes. Uh, Fury Wilder 2 did not set the all-time pay-per-view record. It did not cross 2 million buys, as Bob Arum predicted. Uh, and I'm doing the air quotes thing with predicted, uh, because I don't think I, it was an honest prediction. Could you could you I, hear I the you air quotes? You said, I yeah, could, I, could. <laughs> um, yeah I, I don't think it was a, a legit prediction. I think it was a, te a sales technique. Uh, we knew that this fight wasn't hitting those numbers. Um, but a lot of people expected the fight to break 1 million, at least. And according to Boxing Scene's Keith Eidek, the break-even number financially was around 1.1 million buys. We learned this week that it's going to land somewhere between 750,000 and 800,000. If memory serves, when we discussed this a couple of months ago, when the fight was officially announced as a joint pay-per-view between Fox and ESPN with all that potential marketing power, I said the realistic range was about 800,000 to 1.3 million. So this is at the very bottom of that range. And Honestly, after seeing how hard they worked to promote it, after seeing the Super Bowl ad, after sensing the fight really going mainstream in the final week or two, I probably would have raised my prediction to the 1 million to 1.5 million range. So this is clearly a disappointment to the networks and promoters. Some have pointed the finger at piracy, at people stealing the pay-per-views. And while I think that's a legit problem, it's always been a problem. Aram was claiming black boxes were cutting his sales in half 20 years ago, but we didn't hear about piracy after Maypack or Mayweather McGregor. Piracy only becomes an issue after bad numbers come out. I think it's clear that everyone expecting truly huge numbers overestimated how big the names Wilder and Fury are in America. So, Kieran, a few questions for you. How surprised were you when you heard the reported numbers? Is the piracy angle overblown, or do you think it's fair to say that was the difference between everyone making money and losing money on this fight? And we talked about Wilder enforcing the rematch clause, but with these numbers now out there, might the networks and promoters try to change his mind? Yeah, so I have no idea about the piracy ex uh, excuse slash explanation, depending how you want to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's different from 20 years ago in the back then the signals were analog. And like you said, then people would use black boxes to, to kind of like uh, uh, intercept them. Now I think it's more a case of, you know, 
kids basically sitting in in front of the TV with their phones, like and 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 streaming it to to other people um, uh, that way. People aren't that fussed about the quality of it as long as they actually get to see some kind of weird knockoff. But um, but I have I have absolutely no idea how how serious that that issue is. Um, you know, I, I guess it's kind of interesting that it seems like the purchases through the apps. Uh, did well apparently while the cable and satellite ones were the ones that underperformed but Hmm. uh, i should note that actually right before we did this i did see something online bob aram did some interview where he said no all those figures are wrong it's actually going to be 1.2 million um and take that for what it's worth uh you know so i just feel like i should mention it but right (laughs) um you know, and I think, like like you said, I don't think anybody involved in the promotion can be blamed. I mean, as you like you said, like everyone, I think did a really good job in getting word of the fight out there to to a much wider audience. So I am surprised that it didn't do better. It's not a bad figure out of context right. at all. I mean, it's quite it's substantially better than the first fight. But yeah, with all that publicity, with the ESPN Fox partnership, it, it does feel low. Um, and surely. You know, to get back to your point, no matter how much Deontay convinces people that, you know, he had legitimate reasons or excuses, you've got to figure the third fight's going to do less well again. So, yes. yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if there were efforts to try and convince Deontay to accept step aside money and, and let Fury Joshua proceed. But, um, but Deontay doesn't seem to be very interested in that. Uh, he doesn't seem to be listening to anybody. Uh, as I think he mentioned earlier, it seems like he has gone ahead and pressed the, the red activate button for the third fight. And if no one could talk him out of it, I guess everybody has to go ahead and do that. That's that's in the contract. So um, so if he's going to do that, then it looks like that is what's going to happen next. But yeah, I was I was definitely surprised by the figures. Um, you know, we'll we'll see how it all shakes out. But yeah. Yeah, if I was going to be super conspiracy theory minded, I suppose I could say that Wilder is thinking a chess move ahead and doesn't even want the rematch, but he's uh, going with the rematch clause mm. so he can at least get some step aside money. Sure. Um, but I, I don't think there's any uh, truth to that, but that may be where this all does end up. And I, I certainly think it is possible that, uh, that that they'll pay him a little something to, to wait and let uh, let Fury move on and, yeah. and fight AJ. Yeah, uh, we will talk a bit more about that, uh, all that Fury Wilder stuff in a few minutes with somebody who uh, had a really good uh, look at what was happening in the ring and has some thoughts about what happened afterwards, I'm sure. And that is Stitch Duran. But before we get to that, we do have a few other news items. Um, let's start with always, you can always tell when it's the nature of the news item that's coming up just with <laughs> a big heaving sigh. Yes. Um uh, it's, it doesn't really require any analysis, but, but we should note it. Uh, Sergei Kovalev uh, arrested for a DUI in Los Angeles early Monday morning, last Monday morning, uh, continuing a trend of troubling news, the former light heavyweight champ. Uh, he's already facing a felony assault charge for allegedly punching a woman. Uh, has a pretrial hearing scheduled for April 8th. Um, not, not Sergei's first time drinking and driving either by his own admission. Um, not much to say, except that these outside the ring issues for Kovalev are really piling up. Yeah. Um, rest of this week's news concerns fights that have been signed or are in the works. We'll start with the Showtime fights. Uh, Showtime Boxing Special Edition triple header on March 28th in Las Vegas has had a bit of a change. Uh, Luis Neri headlines against Aaron Alameda. Joseph George rematches Marcos Escuduro as they run back their close showbox bout. Uh, but the heavyweight fight rounding out the card has changed. It was to be Otto Verlin against Lucas Brown. But poor Otto Verlin, who's 
attempts to get on to Showtime for longer than three minutes, just continue to be plagued, uh, has pulled out with a foot injury and been replaced by Abdi Davtiev. Um, additionally, The Athletic's Mike Coppinger reported this week, although I don't think we've had official announcement yet, that on April 18th, David Benavidez will defend his super middleweight belt against the only man to appear on the Showtime Boxing Podcast during an ice fishing trip, Caleb Truax. Um, any thoughts about any of all of that? Uh, I'm happy for Truax to get an opportunity and a payday, uh, although he's clearly a big underdog there. Um, as for the Valine news, that's a bummer just because Fury's dominant win over Wilder yeah. raises Valine's stock significantly. He gave Fury a really tough time and not just because of the cut. So he might just be a top 10 heavyweight and I wanted to see him in action. That said, I don't know much about Opti Davtaev. The record looks yeah. good. 20-0-1, 19 KOs. And you know what? If he's not as good as Valine, maybe that's a good thing because I think Valine Brown had strong mismatch Oof. potential. Yeah. Uh, so maybe this is a closer fight. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk about a few non-Showtime fights that have been added or will soon be added to the boxing schedule. April 17th in Oxon Hill, Maryland, the bronze medal consolation match, essentially, <laughs> at junior welterweight. Regis Progray versus Maurice Hooker has been announced uh, with a weight limit of 143 pounds. Uh, speaking of the junior welterweight division, Josh Taylor makes his first defense since defeating Progray. He fights May 2nd in Glasgow against Apinun Kongsong. Uh, staying in the UK, very intriguing heavyweight fight in London, reportedly a done deal for May 23rd, Oleksandr Usyk versus Derek Chisora. And lastly, another heavyweight fight in London. Anthony Joshua versus mandatory challenger Kubrat Pulev is reportedly done for June 20th at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. We will cover all of these in some depth the week before each fight. Uh, but any quick thoughts for now, Kieran? Uh, yeah, I like all of these fights. Uh, Taylor Kongsong a bit less than some of the others. Uh, Kongsong can certainly hit. Uh, he's got a heck of a knockout of uh, Akihiro Honda last year, I think, that got a little bit of viral traction. Uh, but from what I can tell, otherwise, I don't think he's in Taylor's league at all. Uh, Progre Hooker, yeah, like you said, uh, a really terrific fight. Uh, see, maybe the winner might get another shot at the eventual winner of, of Taylor and, and Jose Ramirez. Um, lots of people will be holding their breath and crossing their fingers during Joshua Pulev. <laughs> um uh, you know, if if a Joshua Fury fight is uh, ever to ultimately uh, emerge, um, but of of all of those, I am most interested uh, in Usyk Chisora. Uh, you know, we've had all this talk of the big three, in the heavyweight division, and Usyk just may have the ability to make that discussion somewhat moot. Um, but we have seen very little of him at that top weight. Uh, Chisora, man, Chisora, you got to give it to him. His second, I think it's his second fight at heavyweight. And Derek Chisora is a very dangerous opponent Absolutely. to face in your second fight at heavyweight, as good as he has been uh, a cruiser. So this will, I think, go a long way towards telling us just how good Alexander Usyk could be at heavyweight. Yeah. So I first met this week's guest almost 20 years ago when I was a big fat nobody looking to find my way in the boxing world and he was an up and coming dashing young cut man. And one day in the coffee shop off the casino floor of the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, latte sipping patrons looked on with concern. He wrapped my hands and then he held up his hands as pads for me to test the wraps out. So I'm um, whacking, his, <laughs> whacking away at his hands as everybody's looking disconcertedly about what the heck is going on there at the coffee shop. And uh, two decades later, I'm still a big fat nobody, probably more of a nobody and certainly fatter. But 
<laughs> our guest is actually established as one of the busiest and most respected cut men in the sport and one of the most genuinely liked people in boxing as well. And not only that, he's a bona fide movie star these days as well. And he was last seen working the corner in the MGM Grand as Tyson Fury cemented his status atop the heavyweight division. Yes, it is my good friend Jacob Stitch Duran. Stitch, buddy, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Well, thank you, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you for that nice intro. <laughs> so uh, congratulations, uh, Stitch, on the uh, tremendous win for, for Tyson Fury last week. It was a dominant performance, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of work for you to do as Cutman, uh, unlike his Cutman in, in his previous fight against Otto Wallin. Um Watching that fight from the corner, at what point were you aware it was clearly going to be Tyson's night? Right in the third round. And how you doing, Eric? Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, in the third round, you know, I, I told myself that uh, there was no way that uh, Deontay Wilder was going to knock out Tyson Fury. I, I just saw that. But, you know, let me add to and the reason why is because, see, I got into camp with these guys the last two weeks, right, when Tyson was starting to climb into his, his peak stage. Mm-hmm. So I got to see the best of him during the sparring. And everything that he did in the gym, he executed in the ring. And I knew that at this point he had already broken uh, Deontay Wilder. He just he couldn't read his style. Mm. You know he's an interesting case, Fury, in that for you, in that you've been on the winning side with him, but you've also been on the losing side against him, obviously with Vladimir. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. so I'm kind of curious, like as a cut man, you know, do you have to be wary of sort of forming overly strong allegiances because you just you kind of never know when you'll have the opportunity to work in like an opposite corner. You know, it's funny you, you bring that up. I guess that was that was one of the conversation pieces that were brought up to me during all these interviews. And the first one kind of took me aback because the question was asked, well, have you called Vladimir? What does Vladimir think about you working with Tyson Fury? <laughs> and it kind of took me back and I said, why would I need to call Vladimir? You know, <laughs> uh, knowing Vladimir, uh, he's proud of me. You know, yeah. I don't have to get his permission. He understands that my job is to take care of fighters. And, uh, and this is what I do, you know, so he would applaud me, but yeah, I thought that was a, a question I've never been asked. And, uh, but then also it, I've never worked with one fighter and then the other fighter, especially beat the guy that was a world champion that I was with for 12 years. You know? mm. So that may be a little bit of a story, but no, not an issue. And I know Vladimir, uh, you know, I was spoken to him or anything like that, but, uh, I did, I talked to Tom Loffer, which of course is a good friend of, of Vladimir's and myself and, and he agreed. You know, Vladimir, I'm sure he's proud of what I did. Right. And does it does it go in the opposite direction at all? It's like you're working with a fighter for a while, and you might develop a personal bond, and then you you wind up in the opposite corner opposing him. Does that ever happen? No, got an MMA. It happens all the time. Ah. You know, so it's not uh, it, it's not new for me. You know. Ah. Uh, but you know, on the same token, if 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 Vladimir was gonna fight Tyson Fury, uh, then you know, at this point. I'd have to cross that bridge when I got to it, you know, but it would, it would be either working with Vladimir or just not working at all, you know, gotcha. just out of the respect factor, you know, gotcha. what would be the best option. And, and, uh, so, uh, but I hope that never comes to fruition. Right. Um, so we have to get your take on, on this madness with Deontay Wilder's outfit. Um, I, I'm sure you don't want to insult him uh, as we were just talking about, you ne- you never know when he might be looking for a new cut, man, no <laughs> sense burning those bridges, but, um, but did it occur to you seeing him on fight night that the mask and that outfit might be a problem? Like, so should someone in his corner have known it could be problematic and, and have put the kibosh on that? 
Well, you know, I, when he's walking down uh, from the shoot, I'm looking at him and I think, hey, man, he's cute. You know, it's nice. You know, I'm going to back like this. He's, you know, he's coming in like this. And, you know, my my wife sent me a text and she said, you know, I, I look at the two characters where Passion Fury's coming in relaxed and happy and jovial and he's the positive side of this. Deontay Wilder comes in, you know, just on the dark side and, you know, kind of like the devilish type of look and, you know, he, she says, you know, so I got my money on Tyson Fury, you know, and, uh, but as you look deep, deep into it, you know, for them to have spent that much time on that type of entrance, to me, it kind of lets you know that maybe they weren't as focused for the actual mm. fight as they were for the entertainment value. You know, to me, I thought that was kind of an overkill. Mm. Um, so, you know, as we discussed, you weren't in, in, in Tyson's corner when he fought Otto Wallin, and he had that nasty gash to deal with. Um, off the top of your head, what would you say were the, is the worst situation you've ever had to deal with mid-fight in terms of, like, a cut or a swelling? Well, you know, the, the worst situation like that is the cut between the eyes. Mm. Uh, the one that Badu Jack had. Oh, oh yes. yes, of course. Yeah, because, because you have that big vein uh, when you laugh and it pops out, and when you, you sever that vein then you got a flow of blood and it's very, very, very hard for you to contain it. And, uh, and then right where the cut is at, it has the high probability of going into both eyes. And whenever a referee or a doctor stops the fight, it's because a fighter is, a, is at a disadvantage uh, where he can't see or, you know, something like that. So those are the worst. You know, mm. uh, the thing, with, luckily for Tyson Fury, uh, a majority of Jorge being that, he was kind of thrown into the lion's den. I don't think he or anybody expected that kind of cut, right? Right. And uh, and and he survived. And like I tell people, if, if this is what he did, is, is if you can control the bleeding, that type of cut, the bleeding for half of the round, then you've done your job. You know mm-hmm. what happens after that? Then uh, you know it's all academic. And and he did that. And then mm-hmm. luckily, a lot of the, the flow of the blood was going to the side of the eye. Mm-hmm. But what do you do when you when you had that like that Badu Jack cut? Good lord, that wasn't even a cut. That was a that was a canyon. Um, I mean, obviously you can't close the thing up. So is that all you try to do? Is basically put some adrenaline in there or something just to try and stem the bleeding as much as you can? Well, you know, it's, and I started working with Badu Jack after this fight, but I told him that the exact same thing happened in my first fight with Vladimir Klitschko when Vladimir and Emmanuel Stewart brought me in. Uh, Vladimir had just come back from losing his world title uh, to Lehman Brewster, and his first fight was with Devera Williamson. That's right, at Caesars. Yeah. Yeah, so Vladimir, you know, didn't look all that good, you know, though he was winning the fight. He got dropped, I think, like in the fourth round, but had won, you know, the rounds before, and and in the fifth round, he gets an unintentional headbutt. And this is what I told Badu that should have happened, because this is what I did with Vladimir, is that type of cut and I've worked on those type of cuts and when I was working with the UFC and an MMA, you know, so you could control them to a certain point, but they're tough. And, and like I told Vladimir and Vitaly, I said, look, you're winning the fight. Uh, you got a bad cut. I'm going to have to talk to stop the fight. Cause I know going past the fourth round, it goes to the scorecards. So when the doctor came in, they have enough confidence in my, my judgment that, uh, Dr. Goodman says, what do you think Stitch? And I put my fingers on the cut, and I pinched them together, and I opened up the cut. And she goes, that's eh, pretty good. They stopped the fight. <laughs> Went to the scorecards, and he ended up winning the fight. Well, the same thing that should have happened with Badu Jack, and that's why it's important to have a good corner. Deontay Wilder, we'll talk about that corner also, because 
uh, I, I was real disappointed. But what they should have done with Badu Jack is the same thing. Even though he was losing the fight, it was easier to renegotiate a rematch because it was an unintentional headbutt. And right. instead, they let it continue all the way through. And I, I felt sorry because he's shaking his head, just kind of trying to get the blood out of his eyes, you know. Uh, but that's why it's so important. And that's why I'm glad that they called me to work with Tyson Fury because it really brought up the expectations of how you need a good cut man. You know, we're an insurance mm-hmm. policy. Whether you use us or not, we are there to, to make sure that you walk out okay. And uh, when that happened, then with Tyson Fury and then bringing me in, it brought a lot of attention to the cut man. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that happened. Right. You said you were disappointed with with Wilder's corner. Is that in reference to yeah. the the blood the blood on on the ear, or with just not stopping the fight sooner? What uh, what specifically? Well, just the application of everything. You know, I always look and see who the corner is because the corner will tell you a lot. If you have a well, if you have a good corner, you you probably have good teachings. You know, even when I see guys wrapping hands, if I see a guy doing a shitty job on wrapping hands, then I know that he hasn't been in the game good enough to learn how to wrap good hands. See what I'm saying? So, so when when I saw the roster on who was the team for Deontay Wilder, I think J.D. was the cut man and trainer. Um, and he didn't know what to do. You know, he, uh, he didn't know what to do. And that was so bad. And, you know, he got cut in the, in the lip the second round. Mm-hmm. I didn't see no application of nothing. You know, the uh, uh, the bleeding of the ear. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you could do, but at least clean it up. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see no ice packs on his face, you know, trying to cool him off. I didn't see no no proper applications on how to take care of a fighter in that one-minute round. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know if you've seen the broadcast back, but Andre Ward made comments to that effect as well between rounds. Like, he didn't, like, he actually said, I don't know what the heck's going on in that corner right now. Yeah, it, 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 you're absolutely right. You know, I'm glad uh, Andre picked up on that because he knows. You know, he knows the importance of having a good corner. And, you know, there's a lot of guys, Karen and Eric, where uh, let's say they're doing four-rounders or six-rounders. You know, I, I don't even charge them when I work with them because I tell them, what I want you to understand is how important it is for you to have a good corner as you go forward. And, uh, and that's so, so, so important. And that was a result of having a bad corner. Uh, throwing the towel in, I know that was a question Eric was going to, you know, ask or did ask. Uh, I thought it was a proper, proper thing to do, no doubt about it. Right. I, um, I did the same thing with Andre Durrell, uh when he fought Escarlo, uh, uh, whatever, got from Venezuela, because the shots that he was taking were what I consider long-term damage, uh, not so much the cutting and the bruising and all that, but long-term damage that would affect you down the road. Yeah. And Tyson Fury were was receiving those kind of shots and if it would have continued going into the 12th round uh trust me it never never would have been the same and uh before i even knew that they got rid of mark breeder and i interviews i was doing after the fight i mentioned that deontay wilder those type of shots should take a long time off you know just from my experience working with fighters so he did the right thing 100 percent. right all right, so let's let's back way up, uh, Stitch. Uh, even t- to before you were uh, wrapping Kieran's hands at a at a coffee shop. <laughs> uh, let's go all the way back to uh, h- how did you decide to be a cut man? What what got you into this business? Well, you know, good question, and yeah, it was fun wrapping Kieran. I think I had to practice <laughs> on him. If I practiced on him and passed the test, I knew I did all right. <laughs> but but I uh, you know I grew up as a farm worker, and um, you know I always wanted to play American baseball and. 
I walked on to a college and I didn't have a car. And so I joined the military in 1972. I was in the Air Force and uh, they stationed me in a place called Thailand, which I didn't even know what it was. And uh, <laughs> there I saw my first Muay Thai fight. And so I started training. And that whole year I trained in the martial arts and uh, got back and, you know, just kind of continued working out and then opened up a school of kickboxing. And that's where I learned to be a trainer and, uh, and a cut man. And that's just being a cut man floated to the top. So, you know, 26 years ago, I made the move to Vegas. And, you know, I had a lot of great world champions in kickboxing. I traveled all over the world. So I had my experience. I had, that was like the uh, uh, the minor leagues. You know, mm-hmm. moving to Vegas uh, was like the major leagues. So I really knew how to wrap hands and uh, I knew how to work cuts. And, and, and I, being that I was a trainer, I thought all the great trainers were in Vegas. So I didn't come to be a trainer. But then they saw me start doing uh, pad work for fighters. And they would hire me to do pad work because I always had a job. So that's how I started. And then uh, it was then it was only boxing. Uh, and then, of course, I knew Dana White before the UFC. And, and he brought me in and, and changed my life. And he took me out and changed my life. You know? right. So here I am now talking to you guys as, as the guy that uh, was the first one to speak out about unfair practices that they did right. and, and taking away their, you know, everybody's sponsors and you know, a lot of people making money, but the best thing ever happened to me. So here I am talking to you guys. <laughs> I mean, in terms in terms of learning to be a, a cut man specifically and the, the various techniques uh, that, that you need to master there, how how long did it take to develop those skills and, and get good at it? Or and is, is it something you're still kind of learning on the job after all these years? Yeah, well, I'm always learning. I'm always studying corners. I'm always learning. But you know, when I moved to Las Vegas, I pretty much had the techniques down. Okay. And uh, because of so many fights that I worked in kickboxing and all that. So, and I remember my first world title fight, my big coming out fight uh, was when Raul Marquez was the IBF middleweight champ, fought Keith Mullins. Raul Marquez keeps a cut man busy. Oh, he was a cut man's dream, bro. (laughs) (laughs) But he he ended up with, he fought Keith Mullins, I think De La Hoya fought Camacho. Right. Thomas and Mac, but Raul ended up with five cuts, two on the eyebrows, like Tyson Fury type of cuts, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, two on the cheekbone and then one on the bridge of the nose. And I kept him in and, you know, he defended his world title. And at that point, the legendary Chuck Bodak, guy used to mm. put the tape on his forehead and look like Colonel Sanders. Uh, he came up to me and welcomed <laughs> me to Vegas. Oh, wow. Nice. wow. So, so what's the, what is there about being a cut man, about a cut man's life that, that, that people don't know is there something that would about being a cut man that people would be surprised about do you think even most people most fans really have a grasp of what a cut man does no no and that's why no you're right that's a good question and and i'm glad that you brought it up because very few people do uh but I, i'm glad that outside of you know having the honor of working with tyson fury but doing it under the circumstances where the cut was everything was the only reason that i came in mm. and i think that just kind of uh you know, through a lot of the interviews I did and, and the, everything I helped, you know, I think I helped educate, you know, the, the fans and the journalists like yourselves mm-hmm. on, on how important it is to have a cut man. And, uh, you know, there's been times, Eric and Kerry, where people say, oh, no, I I've never been cut. Shit, three rounds later, I'm working on your cut. You know, right. so, you know, <laughs> we're in the insurance policy and, and, and it's not a bad investment and, you know, uh, I always say if you're driving a Ferrari, you know, you just don't get collision coverage. You get the full coverage, right? <laughs> and uh, that's what we are. But, you know, it's outside of being a cut man, there's more than just wrapping hands or working cuts. It's the 
psychological uh, uh, things that you could do with a fighter and mean it, right. you right. know, and, and then perform. Yeah. So you you've mentioned a couple of times uh, working with uh, in MMA and with with the UFC. What are the key differences between being a cut man in boxing and being a cut man in MMA? Well, uh, I'm also doing bare knuckle fights now, which is the new sport. But but the cuts in in boxing uh, or the cuts in MMA are are multiple cuts mm. and and they're deeper. You know, so cuts like Tyson Fury are common. Yeah, you know, and uh, the thing like bare knuckle fights, their cuts are are also not as deep, uh, not as big, but multiple. You know, I had one guy that had twelve cuts that I had to work on. You know, so uh, it's a matter at that point when you have multiple cuts is to determine the priority of which one you're going to concentrate on, and um, you know, and and like say, some are going to bleed and some are not going to bleed, especially if you take like aspirin or ibuprofen. So those are questions you have to ask these fighters before they even get in there to help you out in the event that something happens. But boxing, shit, bro, I could be in popcorn and working on one cut. You know? (laughs) (laughs) That's a piece of cake for me, you know? Right. You have to be very careful, though, not to get any butter in the wounds uh, from your fingers. That's right. Yeah, or salt. Right. (laughs) You imagine getting salt on the wounds? So anyway, do you do you have a, do you have a, a passion for one sport o- over the other? And, and remember, you're on a boxing podcast here, so there's only one correct answer. Yeah. No, you know what? It's it's really not even about the sports. It, it's more about the characters that I work with, and mm-hmm. and yeah, I have tons of tons of stories with these guys, and uh, you know that's behind the scenes stuff. And that's that's what I enjoy. A fight to me is a fight, and everybody likes the Tyson Fury Deontay Wilder fight. You know, once the bell rang, it's just back to business. You know, it's leading up to the event, the interviews, the fans coming up, and the pictures and all that. That's what's fun. You know, that's, you know, like saying, to me, a cut is a cut. So it's just the behind the scenes. And you you guys know what it's like. You know, yeah. fight week, we're hang, hanging out at the media center. You're stopping people here and doing the interviews. And, you know, that's the fun part. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I miss, what I used to enjoy was those fight weeks that was fight nights at the Orleans in Vegas. And like, yeah. it just felt like the whole Vegas boxing family would come out and hang out. And, and those, those, those were the great scenes, I think. Oh, I would, I wouldn't even go to the Wayans because I didn't want to work those events. <laughs> Cause I knew, if, I, knew, I knew if I went to the Wayans just to hang out and somebody would say, Hey, sis, can you work my corner? <laughs> right. And you know, it's tough for me. To, it's tough for me to say no, but you're right, man. You sit in the back of, of the hall and, you know, just, you know, the big bundles of six, seven, eight guys all yeah. shooting the shit and watching yeah. boxing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you you already mentioned we talked a bit about um, Vladimir and Vitaly, and, and that's probably your longest association, I would guess, in, in boxing. Uh, um, yeah, what were they like to work with? And, and are you still in touch with those guys? Oh, uh, man, I'll tell you what, too, with all the people I've worked with, uh, they, they sit on top of my list as, as the most efficient, uh, the nicest guys. Well, there are a lot of nice ones, but I mean, extremely humble, very giving. Uh, everything that they did was first class for the not only for themselves but uh, for the whole team. And uh, to me, it was just it was a big, big honor just to to work with them and and to call them friends and you know the relationships you know and, uh, that I had with them, the deep down relationships and uh, like Vladimir when he fought uh, Joshua. You know, I didn't see Vladimir till Friday because my daughter Carla got married Wednesday in Crete. So Friday, I, I saw him in the dressing room, and he had a lot of confidence in me. Both of them did. But I put my hand on Vladimir's shoulder, 
And and I said, look, don't worry about anything tomorrow. I said, I'm going to take care of you like you're my son. So I left, you know, and, and come fight time, right before Michael Buffer does the announcements, right in the middle of the ring, he's about eight inches away from my face. I'm putting the Vaseline, and he says, you could call me son. And, man, that gave me chills because Damn. I knew – I knew that I had gotten into his mind the night before. And mm. to this day, he says, best fight he ever had. Now, and these guys are Russians, right? So keep in mind, you know, I'm a little short Mexican farm worker. These guys <laughs> are, you know, Kazakhstan Russians and all that. And that's that mentality. But we were we were family. And at the end, uh, when in the dressing room after that fight with Vladimir and Joshua, I'm saying goodbye to Vitaly. And Vitaly stands up and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, speech. I love you. I've known you for 25 years, and you always walk into my house. And then he says, the Klitschko era has ended. But wow. for him to say he loved me, uh, it, biggest compliment I ever had in my life, because I don't think he tells anybody he loves him. Yeah. <laughs> but but he, they're such nice, nice, nice guys, man. And, wow. and they, they flew us all out to a resort in, in uh, Switzerland uh, for uh, a retirement party for the weekend that's where they used to train at and wow. uh, they thanked us and they gave us some beautiful bronze statues they weighed like 26 pounds each of both brothers standing there with their belts and you know just you know they gave us rings that were gorgeous they had the Klitschko name on it and they had the color of the red rubies that were Vladimir because you know he always wore red it was a ring it was a circle the the ring and uh, the black was uh, black onyx because Vitaly always wore black and then the middle, there was a diamond because I guess, you know, we we're all stars. Uh, so <laughs> they didn't have to do that. But those are the kind of people that they were. Wow. Sounds like a, a, a one one heck of a relationship that you had developed with those guys over the years. Wow. Yeah. So Kieran uh, mentioned when he when he was uh, introducing you, one of the things he mentioned was uh, that you've been uh, appearing in, in movies uh, quite quite a few over the past couple of decades, uh, both Creed movies. Rocky Balboa, Undisputed, Play It to the Bone, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, although, I have to say, you seem to be getting typecast, Stitch. You, you always play a boxing corner man. <laughs> hey, um, uh, no, I, I told Stallone, I said, you know what, man? I, I'm, I've been in six movies, and I've played myself in every movie. <laughs> you know, for once, I said, for once, I could be a drug dealer. I could be a cartel. <laughs> I could be a cop. I could be a terrorist. Just put me in for 30 seconds, you know, and I won't even charge you guys. Right. Just to get out of there. But, but in all seriousness, not a bad thing, man, to yeah. be in, in these movies with all these stars and, and for the most part, playing yourself. Right. So if any casting directors are listening, uh, you guys should know that Stitch has some range. He can he can play some other roles if you want to give him something right. other than a cut man. No, no, no. Hey, hold on, Eric. You're wrong. Okay. I can't act with I can't oh. act with the beans. <laughs> okay. You, I'm you, not an actor and I can't sing. So 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 you want to do one of those parts, but you're but you're not promising that you can pull it off effectively. I can say one or two words. You know, okay. That's about okay. It. Small yeah. role. Okay. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> so I was going to ask you uh, how how often have you gotten recognized for appearing in in any of these movies? Like, have you gotten stopped on the street by people who don't know you as a real life cut man, but say, "Hey, weren't you the guy in Creed?" Has that happened? Yeah, all the time. I, yeah. uh, I was walking out of the uh, uh, the MGM after the weigh-ins, and these three girls in there. She goes, "Excuse me." Did you come out in Creed with Michael B. Jordan? I said I did. Oh my God! Oh my God! Can I take a picture with you? You know, so yeah, yeah, of course. You know, the Creed movie kind of took me to a different level. 
Wow. Okay. That's kind of impressive that you're on screen with Michael B. Jordan and somebody recognized you. It's like, yeah. that, that's, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> and, 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 girl, and girls at that, because Michael B. Jordan's a heartthrob, right? Exactly. You know? <laughs> but, but, you know, working with him and Stallone, and I mean, how many, seriously, how many people have had the opportunity to work with Sylvester Stallone in three movies? I mean, it's right. not very many, right? It's, uh, but I had told him during the first Creed movie, I said, you know, because I worked with him and Michael B. Jordan six weeks straight, one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, whatever. Uh, but I said, man, I, I can't sleep at night. So he said, what's wrong? Because I'm in my room, and you know, I'm thinking, what's this little Chicano kid, farm worker kid doing <laughs> in, New, in Philadelphia and um, a movie with you know Sylvester Stallone and Michael B. Jordan and this and that? And he said, hey, man, you earned it. And at that point, I thought, man, that's, yeah, I did. I, I've <laughs> earned it. You know, I put in some work, and been good to people and things worked out good oh. and now you've topped it all by appearing on the showtime boxing podcast ditch <laughs> god it don't get better man i thought i thought i was on top of the world man i, I just tell you put a gas mask on because i just changed <laughs> stratospheres you know i'm going so high up <laughs> <laughs> hey Stitch, look man thanks so much for putting some time aside i'm uh sure you're off to some fight card somewhere in the world soon and uh, congratulations again on the mgm and- yeah uh, babe, but, but but let me add one more thing if if, if i can yeah. is you know my initial meeting with tyson fury went this way uh he welcomes me shakes my hand and you know says welcome to the team you know we took a picture together uh we looked at the cuts and examined them i told him what i was going to do and and then, you know, like I say, to me, this is a platform. So I'm a business person also, and this was a great platform. And, uh, and I told him, I said, look, Tyson, I have sponsors. I work with sponsors. And, and I also have my own clothing out, uh, a, a apparel company called One More Round. Would you mind if I created an outfit, my cornerman jacket, with your colors and let me put my sponsors on them? Man, Tyson Perry put his hand on my shoulder. And, and I had met him 10. 15 minutes before that he said stitch you can do whatever you want <laughs> you know so yeah so i debuted one more round uh um, if you look at the pictures now uh the outfit that i have is, is the company that uh, i put together with uh, mark zucker let's start one more round again and i've always believed it because that's my job is to get fighters one more round and Tyson fury let me uh you know let me display it there on the biggest show of probably my career and nice. uh so just to finish it off, it's uh, uh, onemorround.com. We're just now starting to put some nice uh, apparel lines in, and and uh, it's going to be pretty awesome. But giving the fighter one more round—that's what I do. And then we're, we're starting we're, to film a documentary. Starting to film a documentary on my life. Uh, Kevin, you remember I wrote the book from the fields to the garden? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Way growing back. up, as, yeah, yeah. Going up, going up as a farm worker and making it to Madison Square Garden, and uh, it's going to be like a ninety-minute uh, documentary and. We've already shot footage of the garden uh, when Triple G fought. Uh, so in the summertime, we'll go back to my hometown uh, where I grew up as a farm worker. And, you know, we're going to interview uh, Mike Tyson, Andre Ward, Triple G. These guys are committed. Um, Cain Velasquez, the Diaz brothers, Anderson Silva. And, of course, if I can, you know, Mike B. Jordan, uh, you know, that. It should be fun. You know, I had a great life. Uh, and I'm just warming up. And so and now <laughs> nice. that I'm a showtime here. I'm kicking, kicking everybody. Hey, so, and we are I'm we good. are very happy to model your clothing line while recording the podcast. Right. <laughs> of course, 
Of yes. course, of course. Listen, man, of course. Hey, hey Stitch, look, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, of course, man. It. Thanks, Stitch. Great talking to you. All right. God bless. Bye. Thanks again to Stitch. Really enjoyed that one. Um, let's uh, look back at this past weekend's fights. Uh, we start with Friday's Showbox triple header from Samstown Live in Las Vegas. Uh, three distance fights, 30 rounds of action, uh, and varying degrees of competitiveness. And for the first time, and not intentionally, Eric and I made our picks for a Showbox co-feature instead of a main event because the order of the bouts got changed around on us. In what turned out to be the main event, Junior welterweight Keith the Bounty Hunter uh, repeated his April 2019 decision victory over Sanjabek Rachmanov, but it was much more decisive this time. Went from a split decision over eight rounds to a unanimous decision over 10. Scores were 97-92 and 98-91 twice. Uh, Hunter, much taller, better boxer, uh, scored a knockdown in round three with a left hook to the temple. Really dominated the first half of the fight. Uh, Rachmanov, though, didn't didn't fold. He kept the pressure on. He did have some success in the second half, and that's certainly aided by Hunter hurting his right hand in, in round seven. Um, what did you think, Eric, of Hunter's performance? Is the fact that he scored a much clearer victory this time a sign that he's a better fighter than he was a year ago? I think it probably indicates that, uh, although I can't discount that Rachmanov was hindered somewhat by taking the fight on a week's notice. <laughs> but I was generally impressed with Hunter. He controlled the distance. His jab was on point. His chopping right hand was a thing of beauty. He absorbed a few good counter hooks and uppercuts without blinking, and he didn't fall apart after injuring the right hand, and in fact, finished with a very strong 10th round. So, very good performance by Hunter, dominating a guy he barely beat a year ago. It's hard not to see that as a sign of improvement. Sure. Uh, one random observation, uh, with how tall and skinny he is, and the way he came into the ring in a trench coat with a hat on and a mask over his face... Didn't he kind of look like three kids stacked on top of each other <laughs> trying to sneak into an R-rated movie? <laughs> That's where my mind went, anyway. Um, so, the main event was fairly one-sided. The co-feature was even more one-sided, uh, but perhaps not as one-sided as right. expected, since Kieran and I both predicted KO wins for Richardson Hitchens over Nick DeLamba, and instead it went the distance, Hitchens winning... 100 to 90 on all three cards. Kieran and I each picked up one point, so the score in our picks competition is now 22 to 18. It's not terribly close, but it's certainly closer and more competitive than Hitchens versus DeLombo was. <laughs> uh, DeLombo was as easy to hit as we told everyone he would be, but he was tougher and able to absorb punches better than we expected, while Hitchens worked behind a jab that couldn't miss and won every round. The commentator said afterward that they weren't sure we learned anything about Hitchens. What do you say, Kieran? Did you learn anything about him in this fairly easy points win? No, not really. I don't think so. I mean, he showed, you know, very good hand speed, but we knew that about him going in. He showed nice combinations and, like you said, a good strong jab, but we knew he had those too. And we knew he had talent. We knew he could box. Um, it's not great just to say about the fight, really. Um, I'm, I'm pretty high on Hitchens, as I said last week. So I, I guess I was a little disappointed by you know the fact that it went 10 rounds because Delamba really had nothing to offer and mm. and indeed offered pretty much nothing um, <laughs> right. uh, it just became a bit monotonous didn't it um I, I would have liked to have seen Hitchens find a way to break him down you know he threw some to the body but maybe it would have been nice to see him throw more to the body just to bring down that guard um you know but I don't know by the same token that's just occasionally he kind of like dug inside but he just 
really likes to sort of fight at that half distance, doesn't he? And with the straight, straight punches behind the jab. And that's what he did. And, well, you know, he was controlling the fight from there. Uh, he wasn't under any pressure. He got plenty of rounds in. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like his balance. I like his compactness. I find him an enjoyable boxer to watch. Uh, but I would have liked to have seen a bit more of a statement than we got here. But, you know, it's still early days uh, in his career. And, and he hasn't really shown himself to be much of a KO artist, especially later in fights. Um, so, you know, I still want to see see more of Hitchens. I, I do think he's, he's a legit prospect. A little bit disappointed. But we'll have, you know, by the time he's had a few more fights and climbed up the ladder, we'll have long forgotten about this fight, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the opening bout, bout was far and away the most competitive of the night. Uh, and it provided a bit of an upset. Um, in our notes, we were told that it was Genplana. Right. But it was Gents, according to everybody. Or Gents, according Gents, to everybody believe, on broad, yes, broadcast yeah. night. Yeah. So, I don't know. Why don't we just I call like... him Plana? Yes, exactly. They're lying to us again, Eric. <laughs> lying to us about what was the main event. They, lying to us about how to pronounce right. people's names. Maybe they were setting us up. They're sabotaging us. Yes, it's the same people who say podcasting's easy. <laughs> yes, I can tell. Um, but so look, he was, Plana was every bit as awkward as we said he would be. Uh, possibly even more so. Yeah. Uh, 196.94 on all three cards against Kevin Newman II. Uh, sending last week's guest Roy Jones back home to his chickens and roosters and dogs disappointed. We got more social media comments yeah. about the background noise of that interview that I think we've had about anything on this podcast. Um, all right, question about each fighter. Uh, so Newman, as we talked about with Roy, and boy, oh boy, it sure is the case. Uh, he may fight like Roy Jones, uh, but he ain't Roy Jones. Um, so how much of this loss is about his opponent's style and how much of it is revealing of his ceiling? Because that's, you know, that's a couple of losses now in his last few fights. And for Plana... Boy, oh boy, what a jeez. Much as I love to watch Richardson Hitchens fight, Plana, I'm just like, holy moly. And um, Steve Farhard wondered afterwards, why would anybody want to fight this guy? How do you prepare for him uh, with such a unique style? And do you see him having trouble getting fights and capitalizing on this? Uh, so on the Newman question, uh, Plana's style obviously didn't help. But if Newman was a truly elite talent, he would have found a way to get it done. Uh, look, nobody expects anyone to be as good and talented as Roy Jones. Right. But when you see a guy fighting that way, you hope he might be at least as good as the last major Roy-like fighter, uh, who was also briefly trained by Roy, and I'm talking about Jean Pascal. That mm -hmm. you, maybe, you hope maybe he has that kind of upside. It sure looks to me like Newman is not on that level. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how frustrating the night must have been for Roy. Ugh. This is why Sugar Ray Leonard said he didn't last long as a trainer. He's admitted this, that he, he couldn't really cut it as a trainer because his fighters couldn't do the things that came relatively easily to him. Um, it's much, much too soon to write Roy off as a trainer. But I do wonder about his future training fighters because of how he got away with doing things wrong as a yep. fighter and having this generational talent that made up for it. Yep. And that just isn't going to be the case really with anyone that he works with. Yeah. Um, as for Plana, yeah, you know, he's pretty good. He, he's smart. He's awkward as hell. And managers are not going to be in a rush to match no. their fighters against him. He was better off perhaps when he was causing opponents headaches off tv but now now the secret is out about him so yeah i, I don't know where he goes from here no all right let's name our stars of the show our personal mvps of the show box card uh, and you go first this time kieran uh for me it is planner um 
look, he's just got to be, as we just discussed, he's got to be awful to fight. Uh, there are times where he's not very pretty to watch fight either. Yeah. Um, I mean, he does everything wrong. Um, but, you know, you don't get style points. Uh, and what matters here is the win. Um, he has very few amateur fights under his belt. Very few pro fights under his belt. This is just basically at his shows. Um, but he's clearly got some kind of raw talent. And he also clearly has resilience. You know, he got hurt in the eye and I think, the fourth round. Um, and his output clearly dipped for... There were a couple of rounds where it looked like uh, Newman was coming on. But once he kind of cleared that, uh, he was back on form. And <sighs> sort of related to, you know, what, the point that you just made, I don't know if we'll see him again on Showbox. Right. Um, I, uh, I don't know who is going to want to fight him. He doesn't look like he'll go far. But he sure as heck deserves credit for coming in at the last minute and and doing his thing, fighting his fight, and and pulling off this mild upset. So for me, it's Plana. Okay, well, so you're not giving out style points. Uh, I, I I am uh, factoring style points in a, a little <laughs> bit, uh, but it, it's really close between uh, Plana and uh, Keith, the bounty hunter. Uh, Plana gets some extra credit for the upset win for exceeding expectations, but. I would say Hunter also exceeded expectations and, and just fought really well from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Got a lot done. He scored a knockdown. He dealt with a late change of opponent. So almost a coin toss, but uh, I'm going with Keith Hunter, uh, as well as the other two kids who were under the trench coat with him. <laughs> and who between them weighed 45 pounds. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So those are our stars of the show for Showbox. Not much debate about who the star of the weekend in boxing is. Uh, DAZN streamed a card on Saturday night, and we will talk about the main event in a moment. But let's start with the co-feature, since it was Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez who turned in the best, most eye-opening performance of the week. Kieran, I know you were looking forward to seeing the former pound-for-pound king in action in a 50-50 type matchup against Khalid Yafai. We figured we'd find out how much Chocolatito has left, and the answer is... Plenty. Uh, Chocolatito dropped and stopped Jafai in the ninth round and looked to me an awful lot like prime Chocolatito and nothing at all like the guy who got crushed by Srisaket Soring Visai in their rematch. Could you have imagined, Kieran, that Chocolatito would ever look this good again? No. Um, I I was ringside when uh, Sorong V-Side splattered him in that rematch. And, and afterwards, he sat hunched over on the canvas looking for all the world like somebody was ready to go and find another job. Um, <laughs> and and I've been ringside for his last several fights prior to that, and he just started to give the impression that maybe the pack was catching up to him just a smidgen. You know, he couldn't finish off McWilliams Arroyo, even as he won basically every round. And his last fight at 112, and it was fairly close against Carlos Quadras in his first at 115, and then came Stristaket. And And I think that my thought was that 115 was maybe just a step too far for him because I cannot emphasize enough just how tiny he is. Um, <laughs> but it may just have been that Strisaket was that strong and that good. Um, and maybe Chocolatito needed, like, he'd been on a streak of fighting really, really good opposition. And it was just that he'd made them look not as good as they were because of his level. But he was fighting really, really good guys for, a, for an extended period. And maybe he needed a couple of fights post Strisaket against lower level opposition and maybe he needed a little he hasn't been as busy as he was too and maybe he just needed all of that to recharge himself and Mm. you know i I wonder last week when we were talking about it hey you know 
Maybe he'll have one last great performance in him. But the way he dominated and dismantled Yafai, the way he just he just took Yafai's spirit from him and then dropped him and then well, crushed him with that right hand. Um, and Yafai's a very good professional price fighter. The way he dominated him suggested to me that this wasn't just one last great performance. He's got, right. like you said, plenty more left where that came from. Yep. Uh, in the main event of that card, Mikey Garcia perhaps had a chance to be the star of the weekend in boxing. Had he become the first to stop Jesse Vargas? Um, it looked like he might be at one point. Uh, he's dropped Vargas in round five, hurt him several times. I think, again, badly, including round seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it did go the distance. Uh, Mikey winning a unanimous decision by scores of 116-111 twice and 114-113. I had it right in the middle. Uh, I, I had, you know, Jesse seemed to be... I, th- I thought he got off to a tremendous start, Jesse Vargas. Uh, and it really did, was beginning to look as if Mikey Garcia moving up to welterweight was just a very bad idea. You know, on the back of losing every round against Errol Spence, he, I thought he lost all four of the opening rounds against Vargas. Okay. And then I, didn't, then I didn't give Vargas another one until round 11, I think. But talk afterward turned to Garcia against Manny Pacquiao. That's sort of been swirling a bit as a possibility. Um, now it seems as if it might be a little bit more than just a possibility. Rumor has it it could be mid-July in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, There's that sigh again. That's your I tell. I know. I know. Uh, so, all right. What do you think about how Mikey looked on Saturday night? Any, uh, anything surprise you? What are your thoughts about the prospect now of Mikey Garcia, Manny Pacquiao? Mikey versus Manny is a, is a good fight. Fits nicely into that range we've discussed of fights for Manny that are winnable without being unmarketable or mismatches or anything like that. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I figure if it gets signed, Pacquiao probably opens as the favorite, but no. not by a wide margin. Um, but he's the favorite in part because this was kind of a mixed bag performance from Garcia. He started really slow, as you said. Uh, I also scored the first four rounds for, okay. for Jesse Vargas, and I was ready to conclude after those four rounds that... Mikey wasn't carrying any power up with him and and really needed to return to 140 or even 135 after this loss to Jesse Vargas that I was thinking he was on the way toward. And then he hurt Vargas and, and dropped him and proved wrong the, the thought that was in my head. Um, but he had a chance to finish Vargas, a couple chances, really, and, yeah. and, and to make a huge statement. And he didn't. So kind of a mixed review from me. Um, it was just it was going so poorly until... That fifth round, it wasn't even the power that first turned it around. It was when he bloodied Vargas's nose. That right. was that was what seemed to kind of open the door for him to turn around, and then the power showed itself. Credit to Vargas for showing his usual toughness. Uh, a lot of fighters would have would have packed it in at some point in there. Uh, and credit to Mikey for his patience and self belief, and and for doing enough to win. But uh, this fight didn't necessarily prove to me that. Mikey Garcia really belongs at 147 and is going to do great things in this division. Mm. I, I think the jury's still out on all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay, let's look ahead uh, briefly. Uh, there's there's not much at all to preview this week. Uh, have a have a light weekend ahead. Uh, although the scales at Barclays Center in Brooklyn might not agree with that wording, <laughs> uh, as the closest thing to a noteworthy card this week is at Barclays on Saturday with Fox televising all heavyweights in the TV fights. Adam Kalnatsky versus Robert Helenius, F.A. Ajagba versus Razvan Kojanu, and Frank Sanchez versus Joey 
Dovico? Is that how that's pronounced? I've heard it a few ways. I always want to just read it phonetically as Dewejko. There's just something funny about that, but I believe it's (laughs) Dovico or Dewejko. Anyway, uh, that's the heavyweight card. Also on Saturday, Scott Quigg versus Joan O'Carroll headlines a DAZN card from Manchester, England. And that's about it. Uh, we've said several times that we're going to watch a Jogba, no matter who he's fighting. So, Kieran, is that the fight you're most interested in this weekend? Or could Kalnatsky Hellenius be sneaky fun? What do you think? Uh, I don't know that how fun Kalnatsky Hellenius will be. Like, other than the fact that I just enjoy watching Kalnatsky. Uh, mm-hmm. I, think I'm a little, I think I'm a bit higher on him than you are, but... I still don't. I don't necessarily think he's going to reach championship level, but he's just one of those guys who I just enjoy watching. Right. Um, I like the way he fights. But yeah, I, I'm, you're right. For me, um, watching FA Jagba will be the main interest. Um, you know, he's had a couple of slight question marks over him over his last couple of fights. You know, taking the distance a couple of fights ago, did get knocked down in that fun round in his uh, in his stoppage win last time right. out. But um, I, still, I think there's there's plenty of potential there. Very interested in seeing um, how he is continuing to progress. All right. Let us finish this podcast with a dip into the mailbag. Uh, it's been a while. But in the wake of Fury Wilder 2, we did get some questions from listeners about the heavyweight situation. So here goes. Uh, first, Alex Crichton asks, if Fury, Wilder, and Joshua all fight each other, could it make it difficult in determining who is number one when all is said and done? We got a rock, paper, scissors scenario. How does any one of them claim ultimate superiority over this era? It's an interesting question, although it's built on a big if uh, for the rock, paper, scissors scenario to play out here. We're saying that Fury beat Wilder. So that means Joshua has to beat Fury and Wilder has to beat Joshua. uh, And that's all possible, but I wouldn't favor Joshua to beat Fury. If I had to guess, I'd say we're more likely heading toward a situation where Fury does claim superiority for the era. Um, But let's go ahead with uh, Alex's hypothetical. Even when you get a rock, paper, scissors, usually someone is still ranked above the others all time. Like in the 70s, Ali beat Foreman, Foreman beat Frazier. Frazier was basically even with Ali. And Ali probably deserved to lose at least twice to Norton and Foreman crushed Norton. Um, But it all shakes out as Ali's decade, despite some struggles. Uh, The 90s are interesting. Lennox Lewis went 1-0-1 against Holyfield. But I still consider Holyfield the defining heavyweight of the 90s, although others may disagree with me. Um, In the end, it's a combination of who won most of the big fights and who was the biggest star and the money man. Like, I think of the mid-90s to mid-2000s in the middle weight classes as Oscar De La Hoya's era, even though Mm. lots of guys beat him. Mm. So I'd say it breaks down like this. If Fury beats everybody, then it's Fury's era, case closed. If there is a rock, paper, scissors, I bet we remember it as Joshua's era because he will have been the big superstar who generated the most money. So to an extent, if Fury and Joshua fight, it's kind of a case of winner wins the era. Mm, mm, yeah, good point. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's a few weeks ago I could have, and at times I think did picture the the, the sort of very scenario that you sketched out there and, and that Alex posits, you know, um, I, I picked Wilder to beat Fury, but I could very easily see a situation in which Fury had beat Wilder. I thought that Wilder just, even though I thought Joshua was better than Wilder, I kind of began to think that Wilder, with that one-punch power, 
would have the beating of, of Joshua, and I could also see Joshua beating Fury, but now... I don't know. And maybe it's just because I'm still fresh from seeing right. what Fury did the other night. I don't know that Joshua would beat Fury. I actually have a hard time seeing any current heavyweight beating a six foot nine, two hundred and fifty-ish pound man who can move the way he does and apparently also stand and slug the way he does. Right. Um, except perhaps the recently aforementioned Alexander Usyk. I'm not. I'm not giving up on that. I tell you, that's going to be a possibility. But um, you know, uh, and also after what Fury did to him. Especially if he does do it to him again, I don't know that I still have that confidence that Wilder beats Joshua either. Um, right. So I, I don't know, but no, I I, uh, I like the scenario that you sort of uh, established there. But yeah, I don't. As of right now, much more than say three weeks ago, I suspect we will wind up with it being a Tyson Fury era. But we will see. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Usyk again because uh, I doubt he's the guy who emerges as the defining heavyweight of the era but he is definitely the wild card that you yeah. you just don't know where he fits in yet and, and he could end up impacting things um our other mailbag question this week is a long one it comes from at sandy moose 0408 who sent it to me over dm because he acknowledged it was a bit long-winded for regular twitter uh so sandy writes it's weird that we are seeing revisionist history come into play after Fury's dominant win over Wilder, and it's especially weird because it's against both guys. I'm seeing people say now that Wilder is a good puncher, but not a great one. Really, he has only fought elite competition four times against two guys, Fury and Ortiz, and he should be 2-2 two and two with two KOs in those fights. Then for Fury, I'm seeing people say he only has three good wins, Klitschko and Wilder, and that Klitschko was washed and Wilder has no technique, and so they think people are overrating how good his boxing skills are. I don't agree with either of those standpoints. Wilder is obviously a vicious puncher. He knocks guys out without landing his shots perfectly, and with Fury... He just sees what he needs to do with his opponents and goes out and does it. It's so damned impressive. How do we stop people from trying to apply revisionist history? How do we stop people from doing that? <laughs> we, we don't. We can. Um, sports fans, not everybody who's listening to this podcast, of course, but sports fans, by and large, are idiots. <laughs> Especially once their fandom takes the form of nailing their colors so firm to the mast of a particular team or athlete, or in this case, boxer, that they have to warp reality a little bit to justify them continuing to do that. Uh, and then it gets really ridiculous when they decide they're all in on all PBC fighters or all top-ranked fighters, and then they end up with siding with whole stables or with networks against other networks. It's, it's absurd. But um, should be said, it would also be wrong not to be able to adjust one's opinions mm -hmm. uh, as greater amounts of information come in. Um, you know, it's one thing we say of boxes as they knock people over as they climb through the ranks. Can they do that against X? What happens if it's against this caliber of fighter? I suppose it's not unreasonable on paper to question whether Wilder's punches are as effective against the very best if you ignore what he did to Tyson Fury at the end of their first fight and only Fury's bizarre superhuman powers of recovery enabled him to avoid getting knocked out there. Um, you and I have been ringside for a Deontay Wilder right-hand knockout, mm -hmm. and the memosity of everybody's <laughs> ringside reaction, I think, is testimony to exactly what Wilder can do with that right hand. I still think it is fair to say that that right hand is one, not only one hell of a punch, but one of the very best single shots in boxing history, as we have talked about. Um, you know, the fact he didn't knock out Berman Stavern the first time doesn't you know, contradict that as he showed in the rematch with Berman Stavern. So anyway, um, as for Fury, well, there's a case where I myself have engaged in revisionism, but in the other set, in the other way, because I used to think he was crap. 
Um, right. <laughs> I looked at the guy who once punched himself in the face and got knocked down <laughs> and badly hurt by Steve Cunningham, and I thought there was no way he would beat Vladimir Klitschko. Um, but he dominated him in a terrible fight, grant you, but he dominated him. And then he dominated Deontay Wilder. And I don't know, man. Look, it's exactly what Moose says. And it's not just that he dominated them. He dominated two and Roy talked about this last week. He went out there and he dominated two top guys in the division. And he did it in different ways. And it's not only that he's a good boxer. He's obviously a very smart boxer. Um, look, if you can't give Tyson Fury props for what he did the other night, if you feel somehow compelled to belittle or diminish what he achieved, then I pity you. Because <laughs> you're a sad, miserable, lonely little person who struggles to make sense of the world. I mean, <laughs> you have got to give the dude credit for that performance. So, um, but yes, to answer your the question you actually asked, Moose, uh, it is the way of things. Right. Uh, the way that you started that answer, you were actually being way too specific, zeroing in on sports fans as idiots. Humans uh, are mostly That's idiots. That's true. Um, but yeah, yes. I mean... <laughs> Look at the present situation. <laughs> right, yes. right. Um, revisionist history has always been a part of boxing. Uh, the internet giving everyone a platform has certainly made it a lot worse. Um, but, you know, the, the key thing to remember i think here and with these guys is that the book isn't fully written on either of these heavyweights um you know if wilder never scores another big win if he never bounces back then he would go down as a flash in the pan who maybe was never as good as he briefly seemed and fury does only have a couple of meaningful wins so far but he might have several more by the time he's done i think you can trust your eyes to an extent. Uh, you know, Fury's resume isn't that deep yet, but we can see that he is the most clever heavyweight in the ring at the top of the division since Ali. And Wilder has always been deeply flawed with freak power. Uh, definitely ignore anyone who says Wilder is, uh, as as Moose said in his uh, note there, a good puncher, but not a great one. That's, that's just a really bad take. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the rest of it, uh, a little skepticism is healthy, but if you're all skepticism, then yeah. why get out of bed in the morning? No. Well, precisely. <laughs> no, nobody likes that perpetual contrarian and poo-pooer. Don't be that guy. Exactly. And that's why you're miserable and alone and living in your mother's basement. Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> that feels better. Yes. All right. Let it out, Kieran. Yeah, there you go. All right. That will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney before we get too verklempt. <laughs> um, but before we go, uh, we would like to give a shout out to our friend and colleague, Seth Nyman, who's been a fabulous colleague and coordinator for the first year and a bit of this podcast. But he is now moving on to Pastures News. So thanks, Seth, for everything and all the best with wherever your path takes you. Yep. Um, we will be back next week uh, with presumably another interview guest or two uh also uh singing contests prizes bunnies and puppies <laughs> you, you may have overpromised. perhaps yes um we'll do our best anyway uh but until then thank you very much for listening